0: Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now here is Pastor Brian Lowe. Good morning. morning. It is my pleasure to be with you and to bring the word this morning. My name is Pastor Brian. I'm the worship pastor here. Normally I'm leading worship. Uh, but I have the opportunity to teach this morning, and I'm really grateful for it. We're in the middle of a series called There's an App for That, about the book of James. And the book of James is all about application. And uh, last week, Pastor Ken started us off with a glowing sales pitch for the iPhone. And, and since I'm an Android user, I was going to lead in with how all these features in the Android are far superior. But for the sake of job security, I decided not to do that so just know that Android is far superior than the iPhone. Thank you. Um, let's, I got booed in the first minute. This is incredible. Let's open our Bibles uh, to James chapter 2. You're holding in your hands the living word of God. As we read this, just listen for the, the promptings and the nudging of the Lord as we read through the scripture. And as you're turning there, James, uh, James uses a, a teaching style called a chiasm where the central thesis is located in the middle of the letter. So everything's building to this point and then everything responds to this point. So what we're going to dig into this morning is super important to understand the whole uh, letter of James and the uh, application therein. James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. And if one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs. In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied by action is dead. But some will say you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God. Good, even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And in the same way... kind of some harsh words from James there to the the church. And when we read that, it's kind of like he's opening a a can of old-school prophet whoop-butt on them and kind of (laughs) digging in pretty harshly on, on them. And so without the context, it's hard to read this and to know exactly why he's being so adamant and pushing so hard. So let's take ourselves back in time to the early church. In in James chapter 1 verse 1 he says the 12 tribes scattered among the nations that's his audience to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations these are the same people who in Acts chapter 2 received the blessing at Pentecost. And they were the same church that we read about when it said the favor of all the people was with them. And miraculous signs and wonders were done. And the people had everything in common and they sold their possessions and gave to the poor. These were the same people where it said uh, the daily to their number people were being saved. And for a long period of time when they stayed in Jerusalem, they experienced God in a real visceral, uh, exciting, momentous way. And this is his audience, and that's why he's, he's kind of being so hard on them now. Now, God had a different plan. He, he had the Great Commission in mind. And as we just finished our study in Acts last month, God's plan was that you would go out into all the world, first Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then the ends of the earth. And so this church was huddled together in Jerusalem, and they were just hanging out, waiting for the return of Christ. And, they, and Jesus said, I'm going to come back. And, and so they waited there for him, and, and their waiting became uh, kind of inclusive. And so God had, had to scatter them out. And we read then in um, Acts chapter 7 and 8, when Stephen was stoned, a great persecution broke out, and the church was scattered. And that was God's plan, to move them out of Jerusalem into Samaria, Judea, in the ends of the earth. So that took place. And then we see, uh, even in Acts chapter 11, that they continue to evangelize and to, to push the word of God out. But with enough time, they begin to settle in. They begin to lose momentum and fall back into their everyday lives. See, in their mindset, they misunderstood the uh, message of Jesus Christ, he said he was coming back, they thought he was coming back right away. And so they were waiting for him, and when he didn't come back within weeks, and then months, and then years, and then decades, they began to fall back into their everyday life. So how many of us have prayed to the Lord, and we've asked God, if you would just move in my life in this way, I'm expecting this miracle, or this intervention, or, or for you to do something great, and when weeks go by... And then months go by, and then years go by, or possibly even decades go by. Our sense of faith, our expressions of faith begin to diminish, begin to kind of settle down, and we fall back into our everyday life because the prayers that we asked weren't answered in the way that we expected. And that's exactly what was happening to the scattered church here in James. They still believed in Christ, and they still followed him, but because things didn't work out the way that they expected... They fell back into everyday life. So, James is writing his letter out of a little bit of frustration. He's writing to these people saying, You guys were the ones who experienced this. You were the ones who gave everything that you had to the poor. You sold your fields and laid the money at the apostles' feet. Everybody had everything in common and nobody was in need. This was you guys. And now I'm getting reports coming back to me that you're not acting out your faith, you're not living with that sense of intensity. You're not continuing to push the mission of Christ forward like you did in the early days? You mean to tell me that that your expressions of faith are contingent on the works of God? Or or is your expression of faith going to be something that you push forward all on your own? So James writes one of the most polarizing scripture passages in all of the Bible. James 2.24. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I had a Facebook conversation with somebody this week when I posted the scripture online, and they said, wait a second, I thought I was taught something completely different than that. I thought it was justified by grace, and, and we... We understand that as well. And, and here at Northgate, we talk about grace is a free gift all the time and that you don't earn your salvation, you don't earn your place with God, but grace is a free gift and justification is a free gift from God. And then James says right here, but you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And we say, but James, I understand that, but Paul said in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith Apart from the works of the law. So we're like, wait a second, I don't do anything to earn salvation and grace is a free gift, but I have to show my works and, and, and I'm not judged just on faith alone. I'm also judged on my works. But works is a is a sense of a of, of free gift and we our head begins to spin with confusion and, and we start to feel like I don't do I don't have to do anything, but I have to do something. And when I don't <laughs> so I don't have to keep these rules, but if I don't not do these things, then I'm I'm not saved and it, it begins to kind of feel like this poor chump trying to get a surf lesson. So watch this video and see if this makes sense to you.
1: <laughs> Let's go surfing. Okay, when we're out there, I want you to ignore your instincts. I'm going to be your instincts. Kunu will be your instincts. Don't do anything. Don't try to surf. Don't do it. The less you do, the more you do. Let's see it pop up. Pop it up. That's not it at all. Do less. Get down. Try less. Do it again. Pop up. No, too slow. Do less. Pop up. Pop up. You're doing too much. Do less. Pop down. Pop up now. Stop. Get down. Get down there. Remember, don't do anything. Nothing. Pop up. Well, you no, you got to do more than that, cause you're just laying it. Right, out it looks like you're boogie boarding. Just do it, feel it, pop up. Yeah, that wasn't quite it, but we're gonna figure it out out there. Let's go surfing. Come on, everybody's learning how. Come on, uh, the weather outside is weather. <laughs>
0: So sometimes as a Christian, when we hear this message of grace, but then James says something like this, we feel like as a Christian, the less you do, the more you do and don't do anything because the less you do, the more you do. And it can be really confusing like that. And, but what James is saying is that the terms of, of, of grace by faith and this free gift is, is your entrance in, but our works are an expression of our faith. And we don't do anything to earn our way in, but when we accept the gift of Christ, the works that we do on the other side are an expression of our faith. And that's why you're justified through your works, because it is an example of your faith. You see, Paul was talking about keeping the Roman law, and there was a sense that you, you had to keep rules, and by keeping rules, you gain favor. And, and you gain your entrance into the kingdom that way. What James is saying is, it's a free gift through the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for our sins. He did did this for us so that we could live in right relationship with the Lord. Now, out of response to that, our works reflect our following of Christ, and our works are then an example that we actually are saved, and that's the justification there. Um, Romans 10.10 says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. He also goes on to say in chapter 13, and James in 2.8 actually agrees in this command, love your neighbor as yourself. So, so the, they're not arguing with each other, they're coming together. And they were agreeing that you don't keep a set of prescribed rules and the law, but what you do... Is, in a, is, is a reflection of the grace that you've received. And it can be summed up in simple things like love your neighbor as yourself. If I'm acting in love towards my neighbor, then the, then the message of Jesus Christ is alive in me. We run into theological problems when we separate faith from works. When we separate faith from deeds. They're like the two wings of the same airplane, two wheels of the same motorcycle. You could do, do good works, but you can't do godly works without God. And godly things are the only thing that matters. The godly things are the eternal things. So I can do good things, but when I'm doing godly things, that's what matters. And it's really a combination of the two. When I have faith, the works come. When I put my faith in Christ and I follow him wholeheartedly, and even when it doesn't make sense to me and I'm looking at the numbers and going, Lord, this just doesn't seem to make sense. When I follow him that way, the good works come. The fruit of the Spirit begin to well up in us. Gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control, love, peace. All of these things that are are not natural for us begin to well up in us. Paul says in Galatians, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's the example of this this faith justification that uh, when it is absorbed into our lives, it expresses itself through love. James goes on to build off of this and, and kind of solidify this point when he says in 226, as the body without the spirit is dead. So faith without deeds is dead. He's not saying that your faith isn't faith at all. He's not saying that you don't have faith if you don't have works, but what he's saying is your faith is dead and having a dead faith is, is something you still possess. For example, I love my dog. That's my dog. First chance we had to, bet, to get a dog, I, I was like, we, we bought a house, I'm like, we gotta get a dog. We got our own place, we gotta get a dog. I love my dog. We have another picture over here. That's her on New Year's. She's wearing a little hat that says Happy New Year's. Okay, one more, one more. She gives the best puppy hugs. Just wraps her arms around you. You see, I absolutely love my dog. I play with my dog every day. Um, we're just buddies. I have my dog. Now when my dog dies, if I were to get her stuffed and mounted, she would no longer fulfill any of the duties of a dog. We wouldn't be able to play together. She wouldn't play fetch. She wouldn't guard the house. She wouldn't just come and just show me all kinds of love. She wouldn't do anything a dog does other than just stand there and just remind me that I once had a dog. Suppose I could put her on wheels and still take her for walks. But the reality is that my dog is dead. So just like having faith, if your faith dies, you still have your faith. It's just dead. And having a dead faith, you still have it, but it doesn't do anything that faith is supposed to do. But here's the good news we can hear this morning is that Jesus Christ is in the business of bringing dead things back to life. So if you're here this morning and your faith is getting to that point where it's just a taxidermy dog, (laughs) Jesus Christ is in the business of bringing things back to life. I've had to recently kind of rethink my my understanding of what it means to be a mature Christian. Northgate, we talk about helping unchurched people become wholehearted followers of Jesus Christ. And for a long time, I had it in my mind that, that, uh, that becoming a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ was this Brass ring. I'm going to work for it. I'm going to keep doing everything that I can. And in reality, some of us, we just never make it. You know, we try our best, but we never actually make it to a wholehearted follower. And the Lord revealed to me that, that that's, that's just not necessarily true. You see, in, in the moment of your faith being put in Jesus Christ, in that immediate moment, you are a wholehearted follower of Christ. What we work towards in maturity is being able to maintain being a wholehearted follower of Christ. You see, when, when I was younger, I've been, I've been following Christ for 15, maybe 20 years. Oh my goodness, maybe 20 years now. <laughs> Middle of high school, I put my faith in Christ. And at that moment, I didn't care about anything else in this world but living for him. I didn't care about Music style or worship styles. I didn't care about preaching styles. I didn't care about youth groups, men's ministry, women's ministry, uh, community groups, what, what there is for children's ministry, for my kids. I didn't care about denominations, church governing boards. I didn't care about how much people asked me to tithe. I didn't care about if I was going to have to go to Africa on a mission trip. None of that stuff bothered me because I was going to live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ. At that moment... I was ready. I was ready. But see, what happens over time is we begin to siphon back parts of our life that we don't want Christ's lordship. We begin to skim off the top the parts of our life where we're like, ooh, you know, it just doesn't minister to me anymore. Uh. That's the music is too loud. I'm not in that preaching style. I don't get along with the other church members. I'm looking for something better for my kids. Uh, you know, I'm just not growing or, or even more difficult things. Like, is it, is, you want me to tie 10% net or gross? Is it net or gross? You know, we begin to like skim back parts of our life where we don't want the lordship of Christ leading our lives. And so it's not being a wholehearted follower that it was something we become. It's maintaining it that is difficult. And living maturity at that level, gaining maturity at that level is what kind of keeps us from experiencing those peaks and valleys in our faith. And that's what we work towards in Christ. It's our life mission and our calling. But see, Christ would never call you to something that he has never himself experienced. He was fully man, fully God, and he knew what it was like to have desires. He knew what it was like to be tempted. He knew what it was like to have God call him to something and then have to wrestle with it and, 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 and say, God, this is not what I want to do, but your will be done. He prayed for hours in the garden of Gethsemane before his crucifixion. Lord, if it, is your, if, if, if it is at all possible, take this cup from me. I don't want to do it, but yet your will be done. He knows what it's like to have to wrestle with following the will of the Lord and so it's, it's maturity and maintaining that wholehearted followership that we strive for, that we live for, because God has called us to something great. Jesus said, as, as, as the Father is in me, so I am in you. And you're called to something great and miraculous and wonderful. You're called to living a life that demonstrates the power of God in your homes, in your workplace, in your families, in your finances, in your ministry, in your mission, This is what the Lord has called us to. And yet, we just start skimming back just a little bit. It starts so simple until we take back more and we take back more and we take back more of the Lordship. And this is exactly what happened to the church in the book of James. Remember, they were scattered. And for a time, they were evangelizing. Acts chapter 11 says that they were evangelizing the Gentiles and God was doing great things. But with enough time, they began to settle in. They began to relax into their faith. They began to fall back into their everyday lives. And living as a wholehearted follower of Christ became nothing more than maintenance mode. You see, faith, for us, is intended to produce good works. It's intended to amplify in our lives the move of God, that we ourselves believe in Him and we see Him every day working in our lives and we overflow and we pour that out. Faith produces good works. When we have faith in Christ, it produces works. Faith produces works in a a couple of different ways. In your outline, you have a fill-in-the-blank section. Faith produces works in view of my salvation. You see, when I understand what Christ did on the cross and the great lengths and the depths that he went to to bring us into right relationship with the Father, and I see that level of living for God, and then I stand in relation to God, I have two options, really. I can say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Save me. I don't want to go to hell. Amen. Thanks. (laughs) And not go to hell but never live for the glory of God. I could, I, could, I could do that. I could live that way. But that's not what call, God has called us to do. In light of the sacrifice of Christ and of his saving work, we're called to be a light to the world. We're called to go in the name of Christ. So. So how does this play itself out? Do I live with the same sacrificial living, working in the, in the, for the good of others and the benefit of others? Do, does my faith express itself through love like Christ called me to do? Does my love of God influence my love for others? Do I stand in the presence of a living God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and understanding what he did for me and respond to him with that level of devotion? Or do I skim back? Do I siphon back? Do I fall back into my everyday life? James 127 says this religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. To look after orphans and widows in their distress, keep ourselves from being polluted in the world. We're called to action. We're called to something that plays itself out in real life. One of the, I think, most painful things a Christian could ever hear is you've known somebody for a long time, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend. Months, years have gone by, and then somehow in conversation it comes up that you go to church. I go to, I go to church, I go to Northgate. Oh, I never knew you were a Christian. That's one of the most, I think, painful things that we can hear as, as believers, because when our faith produces works, when it expresses itself through love, it should, be, it should be what we lead in with. And I'm not saying that we be obnoxious, you know, we don't need to be annoying, but uh, it should be just a, such a sense of identity that we have, that uh, people know that we're Christ's followers, and we live with that, that kind of an intention to our lives, that everything we do is in response to the goodness of Christ. Faith produces works in view of others' situations. So in my relationship with God, my salvation, I should have such a sense about me that that God is working in my life in such a powerful way that I turn around and I want to express that to others. And when I see somebody else's situation, uh, whether they're living in covenant with God or not, I look at that situation and I pray into that situation. I look for ways that God can work in that situation. I I live in a way where I know that my God lights my path and he goes before me and that he is guiding my steps and when I have the opportunity to speak truth into somebody else's life or provide a sense of peace or hope or help somebody out or care for orphans or widows in their distress, I take that opportunity and I do it in a way knowing that God is going before me. It's the difference between saying you're in my thoughts, and you're in my prayers. Because when you're just thinking about somebody else's situation, we have a, uh, a tacit kind of uh, relaxation about us. I hope everything works out for you. As James says, if somebody is, is hungry, and you say, go and be well-fed, and you know that they're hungry and you don't meet their needs, that's a big no-no. No. We are called to do something great and to trust that God is doing something great in the midst of that situation. Um, And when we say, I'm going to pray for you, brother, and we don't do anything about it. We don't actually extend our hand to meet their needs. We're not expressing the love of Christ. So in view of other people's situations, we look for opportunities to be the hand of Christ, to be generosity, to be love, to be peace, to be grace. I pray with confidence knowing that God has the power to intervene. I pray with confidence knowing that God has the ability to to work in situations beyond my control and even ability to influence. So let me leave it with this. From the perception of the scattered church, they were waiting for the return of Christ. They were waiting for Jesus to come back like he promised. Uh, Unfortunately, they kind of misunderstood what that meant. But when they were scattered out of Jerusalem they had a sense about them over time you know the the revival is over the glory of the lord is gone the glory days are over we experienced something great but it's gone now how many of us who've been christians for a long time can look back over our life and look to a point when we go man god was really moving in that day god was moving in that group of people We have a scattered group here. Many of us came from different churches or different backgrounds uh, because we've moved for work or um, opportunities in this area and we've come to this church. And we may even look back at our previous church experience or somewhere else and go, man, God was really moving there. We experienced something great. Wow, that was awesome. Too bad it's over. When, if we shift our thinking and we change the way that we believe that God is ordering our steps and preparing our lives, we begin to walk with the sense that God had me experience something great there, and then he scattered me to here so that I can bring with me the amazing thing that the Lord did there and bring it here and be an influence for this church and these people and that community, Benicia, Leo, Fairfield, and beyond, to see God move in an amazing way here through me and the works that he's blessed me with. When you are the scattered church, you're not called to settle into everyday life. You're called to mission. When you have a new job or a new, uh, move to a new neighborhood or even a new ministry, you have the opportunity to bring with you the cumulative experience in Christ that you've shared your whole life and bring that here to this place now in our day and to do something great and amazing for the Lord. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. As a matter of fact, my wife and I, we don't pray for jobs. I work at the church. I'm pretty blessed to do that. And Allison has an everyday and normal job. <laughs> and when, when we come to that season where she needs a, a, maybe a new job or a new position, we don't pray for jobs. We pray for mission fields. Lord, put, put her in the office where you know she's going to be a light for you, where there's people in that office that need to hear your message. God, pick that out and put her there. It's been pretty sweet. It often comes with a raise. So, (laughs) but when you pray with your heart tuned to the Lord and His mission, and you live with intention in your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhood, and you see yourself as the scattered church, we are here to bring our experience in Christ here to these people here and now. It changes the whole way that you live and your whole experience. Let's Let's take a moment and pray together. Let's bow our heads. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.